New Mexico is home to seven universities. Three are research, four are comprehensive universities. And during the fall of 2019, those universities educated more than 51,000 students in associates, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral programs. Today, favorability of state universities is the focus of our conversation as we dig into the 2020 Garrity Perceptions Survey. This is Tom Garrity. Today, I have the chance and the opportunity to speak with Dr. Joe Shepard. He is the president of Western New Mexico University, as well as chairman of the New Mexico Council of University Presidents. Welcome and thank you for your time today, Dr. Shepard. Tom, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we jump into the 2020 GPS findings, will you please provide our viewers and listeners a little bit more information about Western New Mexico University? Well, Western New Mexico University, to your viewers, might be known more affectionately as the Harvard of the Gila. And I say that simply because we're located in southwest New Mexico, down in Silver City. Although our range spreads well beyond our region and into the state, as well as the nation and international, we offer about 72 degree programs, beginning where we're the only institution in the state of New Mexico that has the authority to offer everything from adult education for that person who didn't receive their high school diploma, all the way up through the master's degree. We are not a doctoral granting institution, but everything from the high school years all the way through the master years, we can do so, including associate's degrees, certificates, vocational training, bachelor's degrees, master's degrees, and so forth. Our university was founded uh, based off of teaching. Founding fathers wanted to have uh, teaching as the forefront of the institution when it was founded and has been around for over 128 years. Wow. The institution has, of course, changed and migrated along with the times. And we're gonna talk a little bit more about that in this program, about how COVID-19, I think, has been a disruptive force to all of higher education and as well as society. We're no exception to that. About 3,000 students call Western New Mexico University their home as they take their classes from all over the world. The majority come from our five county area, uh, of, Southwest for, of Southwest New Mexico uh, and have, um, have opportunities for everything from nursing to social work to the various sciences, the only program uh, in the state offering botany, for example, to other things of business in your standard MBA courses. So quite a bit of information there. Thank you for allowing me that opportunity to tell a little bit about it. Oh, you bet. Plus it's one of the most scenic, picturesque campuses uh, with all due respect to the to the other universities, uh, just kind of tucked away uh, in the mountains, it's really quite beautiful as well. You know, Tom, I'm glad you mentioned that. Let me talk a little bit about the surrounding areas because many people have, they may have lived in New Mexico all, all of their lives and have never ventured down south, and particularly here. It's not a, it's not on the freeway. You have to make it a point to go there. And either you're going to, if you're coming from the northern part of New Mexico, you're going to drive down I-25 and right past truth or consequence, you have to make a decision. So you go over the famous Black Range, full of its curves and pines and aspen, topping out at about 9,000 feet at Emory Pass and then down into Silver City at about 6,000 feet. Or do you go the way of Hatch, past the green chili fields, up through Deming and then up, up north uh, through the mining area to get to Silver City? Either way, both are wonderful journeys for those who want to embark on that. And finally on that, of course, we boast of the first wilderness area, uh, the Gila Wilderness Area, which is part of the three million Gila National, three million acre Gila National Forest, right on our doorstep. 
and we are we are the gateway to that. Well, that's fantastic. I've been there many times, and uh, it's always a favorite trip of mine to take. When we look at the 2020 Perception Survey, which uh, was actually taken a uh, scientific sample of New Mexico residents in January of this year, uh, it showed that state universities rank eighth out of 17 industries and institutions, and it reveals that 61% of New Mexico residents are favorable towards universities. Your initial take on why universities are so favorable. Well, that also tells you that 39% think the opposite of that, but I'll, I'll take the 61%. Uh, higher education has always been uh, favorably received by the population. New Mexico is no different. I would assume those trends would vary a little bit throughout the nation. But if we take a look at what grows economy, what grows economy is education. And I, I, I have to mention that that would include all education. I'm, I'm pleased to see New Mexico moving toward early childhood that ties into K through 12 that ties into us because we ultimately are only as good as that for which is coming to our institution. Uh, and back to the, the public survey, I think the public recognizes that if you wish to diversify this economy, you need to have a strong higher education. Facebook and other type entities do not come or the spaceport do not come to New Mexico unless there's a able pool of people to which to draw who have that level of education that they're seeking. And when I say education, Tom, I think we also need to mention um, the, the, the whole vocational side uh, of education. Welders, electricians, plumbers, and so forth are equally as important as those of us who end up with doctorates. But I think that that's probably the primary reason is education has always enjoyed a high status place in our society. Well, you know, when we first conducted the Garrity Perception Survey in 2011, uh, state universities actually had a 71% favorability among New Mexico residents. Uh, it slipped about 10 points over the last 10 years. Uh, in your role as chair of the Council of University Presidents, any insights why those numbers might have slipped over the last 10 years? Well, part of it's reality and part of it's perception. Um, and, and what I mean by that is we we as people, we get our information from, from social media and so forth. And over the last 10 years, that social media has grown in its impact. And so it's no longer relying upon your, your, your static, if I will, your static news media sources, your Albuquerque Journal, your local TV stations and so forth. But we've also slipped in terms of what we're providing to the public from a perceptual point of view. And I think we've had some bad news stories over the last 10 years as institutions struggle with internal issues that they've dealt with. You and your firm, know very clearly crisis management, how you manage that communication matters in terms of perception and perception becomes reality. What we as universities need to do, I believe, uh, is to make sure we tell our story a little better because we have a great story to tell. And I don't think we've been doing that well enough. And I think we've been allowing others to tell that story. And the competition, of course, is quite, quite strong out there on that. There's also a second movement that has occurred nationally. And that is the question of the value of higher education when it means a degree. And so for example, if I'm a welder and I go and get a welding certificate and I can go down to Hobbs, New Mexico and work in the, in the oil patch and I can make far more uh, than I could as a teacher in our public uh, education system, then all of a sudden people start to say, well, why, why do I need a degree? I, 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 can, I can get the certificate and I can go, go work. And that is, in, that is indeed part of the rhetoric and part of the reality that we're facing that prior to COVID, that higher education, there are some people questioning about its role. Post COVID, and we'll get into that, I know uh, uh, shortly here, 
that that's going to change. Um, and I think higher education actually becomes more relevant. We'll discuss some of those ideas. Well, actually, why don't we just jump to it right now? You know, with the COVID environment, you know, it's providing historic challenges for a variety of institutions, including universities. Um, what are some of those top challenges that you were alluding to uh, that's really, uh, you know, taking up the valuable time for you and your team? One of the, one of the factors that, of course, has happened is both uh, K through 12 as well as higher education. Everybody was sent home. Online education became prevalent. However, that online education, as many a parent has found out, having to basically homeschool their own kid, is via Zoom. And that, they're finding, is not the most productive way of going about education. I'm going to talk about K through 12 because it does tie into higher education. Then I'll move into higher education. Now, if, you're a, if you're a working parent and your son or daughter was sent home last spring and for some schools are, are home online in the fall, you're, trying to, you're scrambling trying to figure out two things. One, how to teach them. And if you don't have that background in teaching, you're, you're worried about that. And the second thing you're struggling with is how do you educate your kid at home while you're, you yourself are trying to make a living to supply food and so forth for them. Now I'm going to move it into the higher education arena. And here's how I think it's going to change higher education. Imagine if you're a person, you're laid off. I'm going to pick September because right now we're in the middle, we're beginning our, our fall semester. You're laid off in September. And you go to an industry that says to you, look, you can only buy our product twice a year, once in August, once in January. And oh, by the way, it's gonna take you four, six, eight years to get done before it will have value to you. You're gonna say, wait a second, I got little kids at home. I need to feed them. I need something that's gonna propel me forward while I'm unemployed and take advantage of this time. And I need to be back working by December. I can't wait till January to start taking your classes and working on my degree. COVID has fundamentally changed that piece of the equation. And I think you're going to see more institutions move toward shorter class segments, certificate-based, and so forth to get the popula population educated. The second thing I think that's, that's going to be fundamentally different is how we educate and how we go about that process. Um, you know, before our faculty, many faculty at many institutions were strongly against online education. We had, it. for example, at Western New Mexico University, we moved in 2011 from 8% of our courses online to pre-COVID 49% of our courses online. You can receive entire degree programs from us. But understand what we have. We have what's called a bimodal population, meaning we have a group of students who are age 18 to 24. We'll call those the traditional students. Above 24, the non-traditional students. Non-traditional students were primarily about the, the um, get me a degree kind of approach. I just, I just need that to advance in my life. The traditional were more about the socialization aspect of it. But pre-COVID, we actually had students living on campus taking 100% of their courses online. They wanted the university dynamic. And we're seeing that come out in the literature as well as out in, in, in higher education about students who are quite upset about paying for a product that they thought they'd be on campus, living in the dormitory, socializing, student life, all those activities, and wondering why am I paying the tuition that I'm paying to go to school. Post-COVID, what's going to happen? Well, if you were to ask me pre-COVID pre whether my faculty were 100% into this online education side, you would have had a resounding no. Post-COVID, what we have found is 
you have a more of a likelihood of an understanding that that needs to be part of the educational equation. Nationally, I think even internationally, what we're going to see is a consolidation of higher education. And what you're going to see is partnerships formed with both not-for-profit, for-profit, and public institutions, each having certain expertise in being able to provide that level of education. If you take a look at pre-COVID, a, a university like Grand Canyon University or University of Phoenix, growing rapidly in size, Western Governors University growing rapidly in size, 100% online, the reason for which they choose those programs which are most likely to, to be easier to implement in terms of online. You typically see the business programs, maybe educational programs. Obviously, you're not going to see a welding program. That can't be done online. But now what you're going to see, I think, is partnerships formed between institutions like Western with institutions like, like those institutions I just mentioned, whereupon we may outsource some of our courses back and forth. They may outsource to us. And you're going to see the higher education market, in my mind, begin to shrink in terms of the total number of universities because it's unsustainable. Let's talk about New Mexico, because I know that's near and dear to our hearts. We have, I believe, 17, I think, no, I'm sorry, we have 15 community colleges. We have seven universities. We have tribal schools and other things to a total number of higher education institutions of 32, outreaching to 2 million people. You can't sustain that. And we're seeing that. Put that with what's happening with the budget at the state level, and I, I see consolidation occurring. So a lot of things are moving, a lot of moving parts there, Tom, but I think there's a, and I know I gave a very long-winded answer, but it's a very complex thing that's going on, and I haven't even talked about sports. Yeah, and, and, and I, while I would love to talk about sports, you, t you hit on so many different topics. Let's uh, briefly kind of do a, a peel off on, uh, on consolidation. Um, right now, there are a number of universities that have uh, campuses in different parts of the state. Um, you talk about consolidation. Is that one of the areas where we could start to see those first forms of consolidation and partnership? Yes, uh, I, I think you'll see consolidations begin as follows. Well, let me, I need to take a step slightly back before I go into what I mean by as follows. Mm -hmm. We have to understand what universities and community colleges and branch campuses and twigs and learning centers and all these sorts of things are. In many communities, they serve a function beyond higher education. I'll take my little university in Silver City. Could you get an education online without having a university in Silver City? And the answer is obviously yes. But what does that mean to the community and region? Remember universities in small towns like Silver City or Las Vegas and places like that are also cultural centers. We provide those concerts that occur in our fine arts building. We might provide the movies for that particular community. We might provide festivals and other sorts of things. We might provide lifelong learning opportunities. Uh, we might provide symposiums, and conventions, and all those pieces. And I haven't even mentioned getting a degree yet. So it's more than just saying, how many degrees are you producing and how many credit hours do you have? It's bigger than that. We also are economic drivers, both in the area of research, which you don't see show up on a, on a diploma, as well as in areas of, of what we bring to the community in terms of our people coming in and, and supplying the tax base and buying food at the grocery store and all those other pieces. So to instantly dry that up has greater ramifications than simply saying, I can get a degree elsewhere. But now let me go to your question, because your question is about consolidation and that indeed will occur, I believe. It has to occur. 
And if I take a look at that, I think you're, you're going to see the first phase being consolidation of staff and processes. So for example, right now, if we all have a computer staff and we all have a, you know, a um, human resources and all those various things that you'd expect a university to have functionally, what you're going to see is you're going to start to see system sta staffing, if you will. I might outsource my computer functions to New Mexico State. My staff who might be listening to this might, might be shocked, and I'm not trying to telegraph a message. I'm simply saying that that is an example of what could easily occur. And people begin to worry about that, so I have to be sensitive about what I'm truly saying. But you'll see that occur. You also might start to see other types of consolidations. So for example, right now, maybe at Western New Mexico University, I have a math class. Again, I'm not telegraphing anything, Tom, but I have a math class that might only have six students in it. Meanwhile, up in Highlands, they may have a math class that might only have six students in it. And so instead of both of us hiring a professor each, we may consolidate and hire one professor to teach all 12 students now that we understand a little bit about at distance. So I think that's gonna be your phase one in terms of the low hanging fruit of how we consolidate staff functions as well as faculty functions. Phase two, I think is actually physical. I think we will start to see a consolidation of physical space where maybe some of our institutions are no longer um, no longer operational. And that, that, will, that will occur a little differently. Well, and consolidation is something that is happening in a variety of different industries, you know, including, uh, you know, earlier this week, uh, the Albuquerque Journal announced that they were consolidating their printing presses uh, with the Santa Fe New Mexican. Uh, while stating that editorial content wouldn't be separated. So, you know, your you know, visionary approach uh, for what could happen or what will happen with universities is also being seen by other uh, industries as well. When you look at the universities and really during this time, it's all about building trust uh, among students and their families. Um, what do universities need to do in order to build uh, that trust with those key audiences? Well, tr trust is a, is, a, is a long game, isn't it? Uh, it's easier to lose trust than it is to gain. I can right now on this, on this interview say something and instantly lose trust that took me 10 years to develop. And so when we talk about that, credibility is, is, is developed both incrementally but lost in chunks. And what I mean by incrementally is universities have to be transparent in how we go about both our successes and our failures. Because I trust you if I know that you're telling me the truth about the things that are hard to tell the truth about, right? You know, if you tell me the truth about your failures, I have a greater level of trust that I can believe you. And universities need to take a lesson from that. And so if universities are struggling, and, and I think we do also need to send the message about our, our successes. No doubt about that. I think that needs to be part of it. Um, in fact, maybe that's the bulk of it. But we also have to be transparent when we go, go astray or we go wrong. Uh, and so with our parents and with our students, you know, one of the elements, I'll, I'll take COVID as, a, as an example. Mm -hmm. So a lot of parents are concerned about their, their son or daughter living on college campuses. So if I say to the parent, look, come to Western, Grand County only has 72 COVID cases. It's very safe. Nothing bad's going to happen to your son or daughter. And then your son or daughter goes to Western and they end up infected with COVID. Well, wait a second. You said I was going to be safe yet my son or daughter came to Western. The better messaging is to say, look, I can, I can reduce the probabilities that your son or daughter might get COVID by appropriate quarantining, face masks, social distancing, et cetera. I can't eliminate the risk. And if that's your expectation, this may not be the place for you. But 
If they do get COVID, here's what we're going to do about it. And again, build that trust by being honest about the realities that we're faced with and being honest about what we're gonna do about it. And then the final piece, well, and be honest in terms of managing expectation. And the final piece is to be honest when an event occurs and be out front with that so mom and dad aren't finding out about it from somebody else. Great stuff. Finally, I know you do a lot of hiking throughout New Mexico. Uh, your, your backdrop, I think, is testament to that. Uh, what is a great diamond in the rough when it comes to your favorite treks through the land of enchantment? Oh, the land of enchantment has so, so many jewels. The background behind me is, is one of those jewels, and that is Jordan Hot Springs. It's a beautiful uh, hot spring that is located right off the banks of the middle fork of the Gila River. The Gila River is made up of three foot forks, east, middle, and west. This one happens to be off, off the east fork. Great place to go. You head up to uh, the cliff dwellings. There's a place called TJ Corral. Park your car there. And about seven miles later, as you're crossing the middle fork 15 times, off on the right-hand side will be Jordan Hot Springs, and that's the scene behind me. And then, of course, yes, 15 crossings back and seven miles back, so a total of 14 miles. Exhausted, you'll get back to your car, but you'll see one of the jewels of New Mexico located in the Gila Wilderness. And so that's just one of the many places. And not far from Western New Mexico University. Well, it's, it's a very, I say short drive. It's a short drive, but it's a long drive. Because it's uh, winding curves, it's a drive of, I think, only about 38 miles to get to the trailhead, maybe even less than that. But it takes about an hour and 15 minutes to get there from, from, uh, from our campus. Dr. Shepard, where can people learn more about Western New Mexico University? Easiest place, as everybody likes to do, is go out onto the web at www.wnmu.edu. You can remember that if you think Western New Mexico University, that's where you get that WNMU from. And that's where we're at, www.wnmu.edu. Dr. Joe Shepard, President of Western New Mexico University, thank you very much for your time today. Tom, it's always a pleasure to see you. Thank you for having me. You bet. For more insights about the Garrity Perception Survey, visit GarrityPR.com.